Hey guys, this is Erin from Roadrun Blonde, and I wanted to tell you about a new feature on ACAST that supports its artists. It's the supporter feature. Listeners to Roadrun Blonde can now donate and support the podcast. However, there's no subscription or commitment. You can just give whenever or whatever you'd like. It's completely up to you. Just find the support the show link in the show description on any episode. You can use Apple Pay or Google Pay, and it takes less than 30 seconds. You can donate anonymously, or you can add a message that I can see. As a podcaster, everything comes directly out of my pocket. I don't get paid to podcast. It's just my passion. So anything is appreciated to keep the show going. Thank you so much, guys. And now on to the show. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello and welcome to Red Rum Blonde. This is a true crime podcast. Each week, I'll explore a case, the victims, the facts, and the mystery surrounding it. Some are solved, some remain unsolved. I'm your host, Erin Fleming. Hey, welcome to Red Round Blonde. The case I'm going to discuss this week has been a very hot news item. There's a man dubbed the Hollywood Ripper that's currently on trial for murder. He has killed three women but that total could be much higher. I knew a bit about the case, but definitely wanted to learn more. So this week, I'll discuss the Hollywood Ripper, Michael Gargiulo. I obtained a good bit of my info on an article in Chicago Magazine by Brian Smith and a webpage called SamuelWeeBlogspot.com. On August 14, 1993, between 1 and 2 a.m., 18-year-old Trisha Picaccio was viciously attacked. While on the stoop of her home, her arm was twisted so hard, it snapped while she was repeatedly stabbed in the heart, lungs, arm, back, collarbone, and abdomen. And what came next was gut-wrenching. Her father, Rick, had gone out to walk the dog the next morning when he saw his daughter's bloody body lying on the stoop her house key clutched in her hand. One can't even imagine the anguish he felt at seeing such a sight. 
Rick tried to revive his daughter, but he realized her body was cold and he knew she was dead. A neighbor heard him scream and call for help, and his son Doug also heard his cries for help. And the stress on both Rick and his wife Diane was so much that they both blacked out and were taken to the hospital for shock. Diane had been at work at the time when her husband found their daughter. Physical evidence was collected at the scene, such as a man's shoe print, DNA from under Trisha's nails, and her keychain. There were also many potential witnesses since the neighbors and the cul-de-sac had thrown a pool party that same night. But all hopes were dashed. No one from the party had seen anything due to a thick fog, and the footprint turned out to belong to Trisha's father, Rick. And at the same time, nothing of use was pulled from the DNA or the keychain. The police didn't even have a motive. She didn't have any enemies, nothing was taken, so it wasn't robbery. She didn't appear to have been sexually assaulted. Since it was a stabbing, according to experts, it usually means a close connection to the victim. But the police had nothing. No one had a motive to kill her. Detective Mark Baldwin, who worked on the crime, said even Trisha's friends wouldn't speak to the police. The case went cold. Rick and Diane kept their daughter's room the same as she left it, even though being inside it was too painful to bear. At first, they couldn't even live at the house. Instead, they lived with Diane's mother for about four years. And all they had were memories. Trisha's friends described her as genuinely nice, a beautiful person inside and out. The night of her death, she and a group of friends were letting loose on the town because it was the last night before college, and they were doing a scavenger hunt. Trisha was headed to Purdue University. She was going to study engineering. After the scavenger hunt, the friends went to a TGI Fridays, and they later spent hours talking in the parking lot. She dropped two friends off at home and went home herself. Her father last saw her after one of her long, infamous showers. He joked about how much hot water she used and said, how can a person use so much water when they're so little, in reference to her 95-pound frame. And that was their last interaction. Little did Trisha's family know, her killer lived only five houses away, and knew one of her younger brothers. But it wouldn't be until years later, on the other side of the country, for a development to be made. And sadly, more deaths had to occur for that to happen. 22-year-old Ashley Ellerin moved from Hollywood from the San Francisco Bay Area in 2000 with dreams of making something of herself. And unlike most who come dreaming of stardom, Ashley spent her days wanting to become a fashion designer. She attended the Los Angeles Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising. But being in Hollywood, you are right in the mix of glitz and glamour. On February 21st, 2001, Ashley Ellerin had a perfect Hollywood night planned. She was going to attend a Grammy's party with a hot up-and-coming actor named Ashton Kutcher. Now, this is pre-Demi Moore and well before his marriage to Mila Kunis. At that time, he had just started starring on That 70s Show, and he and Ashley had met through a mutual friend. When they first met, he was dating another girl, so he introduced her to his friend, who dated her for a while. Later on, he went to her house for a housewarming party, 
and the two just happened to be single at the same time. So they went out together a couple of times and had fun, so this night was sure to be a good time. Ashton was running late, letting his date know by phone around 8.24 p.m. He remembered that time precisely because Ashley was using a friend's phone since hers wasn't working properly. And when he looked at the phone call, it displayed the time. I've read a couple of different accounts of what their plans were for the night. A few said they were going to a Grammys party, and some said they were just going to dinner. But regardless, Ashton let her know that he was just going to watch the Grammys on TV and suggested they go have drinks, to which Ashley agreed. By the time he showed up at her door, it had been hours. It was between 10.30 and 10.45 p.m. The security gate to the bungalow behind Grauman's Chinese theater was open. And when he knocked on the door, he heard only silence. He knocked again in case she hadn't heard the first knock. Ashton Kutcher wasn't stupid. He knew she was most likely mad that he was late and had likely left for the night. But just to be sure, before he left, he peeked in the windows to see if that was the case. All of the lights were on, which seemed odd. And he noticed what looked like spilled red wine on the floor, and it looked a bit of a mess inside. At the same time, he didn't think much of it. He'd been to the apartment previously and said it looked like a college party atmosphere. I mean, remember, these are young people in Hollywood in the early 2000s. Drinking and going out for the night were high priorities. So it's quite reasonable for Ashton to assume that what he saw was wine and that she might have left for the night. Not wanting to appear as a creep looking in the window, he left. The next morning, Ashley's roommate, Jennifer DeSisto, came home. And there was her friend lying across the stairs in her bathrobe, covered in blood. And it was very apparent that she was dead. In a horrible fright that that killer was still there, Jennifer ran out to her car to call 911. Detective Tom Small was one of the first on the scene. He noticed a lot of blood and thought that whoever did this exhibited a lot of rage. He remembered it as one of the worst things he's ever seen. She'd been stabbed over 47 times. Police theorized that she was attacked from getting out of the shower, and the killer ambushed her from behind. Her injuries included deep puncture wounds to the chest, stomach, back, and some were six inches deep. She had a neck wound that nearly severed her head and one stab that actually penetrated the skull and took out a chunk of the skull like a puzzle piece. And this was according to Detective Small. She had a wound so deep that the only thing that kept her from being decapitated was her spinal cord. And decapitation might have been the agenda. She had a V-shaped wound across the back of her neck as if someone was trying to finish the job and 12 of the many wounds would have been fatal themselves. Some of the wounds on her chest were in a downward angle, and this was as if the killer were stabbing her from above. The killing was over the top. Now, since Ashley was found wearing jewelry and there was cash in the home, it wasn't robbery. The apartment had been locked up really tight with security bars on the windows and everything. Police theorized that she knew her killer. And little did Ashley's friends know, they did know her killer. 
Ashley had run into him initially when he offered to fix her friend Christopher's flat tire. The man told them that he was a heating and air conditioning repairman who lived in the neighborhood. He also did work on her heater in her home after a persistent 20 calls to offer to do it. And after that, he became infatuated with her, showing up at odd hours, sitting in his car at the end of the street. One night, he was caught around 2 a.m. outside the house. One of Ashley's roommates, Justin Peterson, confronted the man who started babbling odd things about how the FBI was at his home trying to get DNA because his best friend's girlfriend was murdered. And then he put up his leg, revealing a giant hunting knife. Justin got the man to leave. So naturally, Ashley's friends did suspect this man and let police know that they should check him out. The man was Michael Thomas Gargiulo. The friends remembered him as the one that came to fix the heater in the house. Coincidentally, Gargiulo also knew the Picaccio family. He was 17 when Trisha was killed. Gargiulo was friends with her brother, Doug, but he only knew Trisha in passing. Rick remembered him as quiet and certainly not violent. But a year after Trisha's death, he started acting odd. He brought Diane flowers, and she assumed the lilies were because it was around Easter time. But then it was a gift certificate and then a shirt for Rick. The behavior was weird, a thought seconded by detectives investigating the case. Detectives Mark Baldwin and Jack Reed decided to take a closer look at this family friend. He did have a criminal record for theft, but nothing violent. When they talked to Gargiulo, he pointed the finger at a friend named Eric. Gargiulo said the morning after the murder, Eric came to his house and asked him to come with him while he hid something. That something was a gym bag. But he had no idea what Eric had inside of it. But he suspected it could be a knife. Eric refused to speak to the police, and he became their number one suspect, taking all the heat off Michael Gargiulo. They were unable to find any evidence implicating Eric, so the case went cold. Five years after the murder, Gargiulo suddenly appeared at the Picaccio's home, saying he needed to talk to Rick. Rick wasn't there, but when he arrived home from work, he remembered the look on Michael Gargiulo's face. It was as if he wanted to tell him something, really get something off his chest. But before he could say anything, Gargiulo's two sisters arrived, and they told him he had to leave, and they hastily took him away. It was at that moment Rick knew, knew that Gargiulo had to have killed his daughter. He called the sheriff's department, but Gargiulo had left town. The infuriating thing is that even after the weird way he acted when he knew Ashley, he never became a suspect. Her case, just like Trisha's, went cold, and there would be more bloodshed. Another woman would be found dead on her doorstep, just a few houses away from where Gargiulo lived, and this was in the year 2005. 32-year-old Maria Bruno lived in apartment 20. In her childhood, she'd come to America from El Salvador, and at a pretty young age, she married and got pregnant. 
eventually becoming the mother to two-year-old twins and a four- and five-year-old. However, her marriage failed, and she had recently separated from her husband and needed to move out. Concerned about living on her own, she found a secure apartment. A passcode or a key was needed to enter the front door. It was exactly what she needed. But she had only been there 10 days before something awful occurred. As Maria slept, someone removed the screen from the ground floor kitchen. And from there, they found a weapon in the kitchen and attacked her. Now this gets pretty gruesome. Sadly, it was her estranged husband who found her. Some accounts say they decided to work on their relationship, and others say they were just on friendly terms. Regardless, he was there to drop off her car when he found her in her bed, and she'd been horribly mutilated. Her breast had been cut off, and one of her nipples was placed over her mouth. Once again, detectives on the scene eliminated robbery. Nothing was taken. And even though her breasts were mutilated, she wasn't sexually assaulted. But the killer did leave something behind, a blue cotton booty. It's the kind that workers wear over their shoes when they enter a home. And on the booty was a drop of Maria's blood. Detective Mark Lillianfeld was assigned to the case. He was dismayed that they had a clue, but not much else. There wasn't enough DNA on the booty to use. And there were a few witnesses to a suspicious character seen around her building about five days before her death. This man followed her from the parking lot to her apartment. He went inside, and when he exited about 10 seconds later, her neighbors kind of looked at her like, what's the deal? Maria looked at them and just said, oh, he's okay. But despite all this, Maria's case, like the others, went cold. And it wouldn't be until 2008 when a break would be made. It would take one last attack for the pieces to fall into place. Detective Richard Lewis of the Santa Monica Police Department remembers getting a call to respond to a stabbing at around 1230 in the morning. Now, the story will sound familiar. It's around 1140 p.m. A man got through an open window. He opened the front door, planning his escape. From there, he went to the bedroom where Michelle Murphy was sleeping. She awoke to find a knife being plunged into her. She was stabbed in the chest, shoulder, and arm. She remembers a man in a dark hoodie attacking her and being on top. She wrapped her hands around the blade to keep it from stabbing her again. She screamed, why are you doing this? But he just remained silent. Michelle was able to get to her feet and kick him off the bed. And as the man ran from the room, he stopped and said, I'm sorry. Police followed a blood trail that led from the front steps to a walkway and then to an alley. Sergeant Richard Lewis submitted those blood samples to the crime lab. And 25 days later, he got a DNA hit. And who did it match to? Michael Gargiulo. A day later, on June 6, 2008, he was arrested. Detectives were stunned to realize he lived right across the alley from Michelle Murphy. He could literally see right inside her bedroom if the blinds were open. And Gargiulo wasn't surprised to be arrested. Instead of asking what the charges are, he said, what agency is this? Which tells you a lot. He already knows there's a crime. 
he's more concerned which crime he's being charged with. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Lewis's hit had come from Cook County, Illinois. Lewis found out in 2002, Cook County had asked the Los Angeles Police Department to get a sample of Gargiulo's DNA. They had actually contacted Detective Small for help. Remember, he was the one investigating Ashley Ellerin's murder. It would take him more than a year to find Gargiulo and get his DNA. And it would take five years for that sample to connect all the murders. Lewis called Detective Lilienfeld with his suspicions that the murder of Maria Bruno was related to the other ones. And Lilienfeld went to Gargiulo's old apartment to look for clues. And in the attic, guess what he found? A blue cotton booty, just like the one found near Maria Bruno's apartment. The case was submitted to the Los Angeles District Attorney, who indicted him on three charges of murder. But why hadn't Cook County arrested him sooner? In 2003, the Illinois State Crime Lab had matched his DNA to the unknown DNA found under Trisha's fingernails but they decided not to act on the DNA as evidence. They felt it wasn't enough to prove that he was there when she was murdered. Remember, he had been a family friend, and he'd been in the home multiple times. And since the crime lab used a single swab to collect the DNA from under her fingernails, it made it hard to say where it had originally come from. They couldn't tell if it had originally come from under her nails or on top of her nails. So the DNA could only prove that he was there, but not when. It's frustrating, but understandable why they couldn't make their case against him. Another question was, why had it taken so long to go to trial? Well, apparently, Gargiulo had repeatedly changed lawyers and even represented himself for three of those years, kind of like Ted Bundy. This is what delayed the trial for so long. 
So who is this guy? Well, we know that he lived in Chicago and was a family friend of the Picaccios. He was born in Glenview, Illinois in 1976 and grew up with six siblings. I wasn't able to find out much about his childhood. His family lived about 100 yards away from the Picaccio family. One former neighbor remembers him as odd and angry. And his parents even admitted to Diane Picaccio that they were afraid of him. They wanted to kick him out, but they were afraid he'd seek revenge. His father said he figured his kid needed medication, but he would never take it. So then Gargiulo moved to Los Angeles in 1998 to escape police scrutiny after Trisha's murder. He spent some time as an amateur boxer who worked as a bouncer at a nightclub. A former girlfriend said he was violent, once hitting her so hard her retina became detached. Another girlfriend said he shocked her with a taser gun. The man that came to be known as the Chiller Killer and the Hollywood Ripper was a married man who fathered several children and ran his own plumbing business. Michelle Murphy, the last woman that was attacked, remembered seeing his van with the name Gus the Plumber painted on the side, parked in the alley behind her place days before the attack. Gargiulo was married to a woman named Anna Luz Gonzalez, who lived in an apartment across the alley from Michelle Murphy. And the night he attacked Michelle, his wife was home asleep. This guy is a violent man who knows how to work the system. Not long after he was arrested, he took a plastic spoon, whittled it down to a point with his teeth, and tried to unlock his handcuffs. His intention was to jump out a window, jump over the fence at the jail. He said he would have disabled the jailer with a fatal throat punch to ensure his getaway. A charge of attempted escape was added to his murder charges. Also, two witnesses have come forward claiming Gargiulo told them that he killed Trisha back in the 90s. The men, 37-year-old Timur Leary and 37-year-old Anthony DiLorenzo, told their stories to a grand jury. Leary worked with Gargiulo in California, and he came forward after an airing of 48 hours about Trisha's case. DiLorenzo and Leary worked with Gargiulo as bouncers at the Rainbow Room on the Sunset Strip. The Rainbow Room was really famous back in the 90s. So they remember him as a weird guy with quite a temper. Leary said he always carried a knife and a gun. And he said any time he got nervous, Gargiulo instinctively went for his knife. They not only worked together, they hung out after work. Gargiulo wanted to be a boxer and Leary's grandfather owned a boxing gym, so they became pretty close. And it was during one of their drives around town that they heard him admit to the killing of Trisha Picaccio. Originally, the men just blew it off, thinking it was a tall tale. But looking back now, there are other incidents that bother Leary about his old friend. DiLorenzo told Leary about a logo that Gargiulo had designed for his new business. It was a woman lying on her back with her legs folded over her shoulders and arms out, and a knife was part of the logo, with a word that he couldn't quite recall, but he said it was similar to Picaccio. Leary also referenced a picture of a woman with Gargiulo. 
and it seems detectives in Los Angeles are trying to track her down. So this could mean a couple of things. She could be a potential victim of his, or she could have some vital information that would be valuable to the investigation. But it's all of little solace to the Pagaccio family, who have waited nearly 18 years for justice. They are upset that their daughter's killer wasn't arrested many years ago. They are also incensed that he's not being charged now with her death. Rick Pacaccio said, If the people of the state of Illinois are stupid enough to believe he didn't do it, shame on them. All we want is our daughter to have justice, and they're robbing her of that. A California judge has allowed evidence of Trisha's killing to be used in the cases of the other three women, so why aren't charges being filed for her murder? Hopefully that will change, and maybe after this trial. And even though it won't provide closure for her family, I think this is something that they need. I mean, there's no such thing as closure when someone you love is murdered. But justice being served is what they deserve. That was the case of the Hollywood Ripper, Michael Gargiulo. I will keep you updated on what happens. And this week, I have my first corrections corner. So last week's episode was about Rachel Del Tondo. And I mentioned that one police officer was suspended due to a text that was sent to a minor with sexual overtones. And a listener on Podbean left me a comment correcting that part of the story. She said Joe Percival didn't sex Lauren Watkins. He sent a meme with a naked woman to her parents, and she was in the group text by accident. And Lauren's dad confirms this. So thank you for the correction. It's good to know that this guy's not a total creep. I tried to go online and thank you, but of course I could not log back into Podbean. And speaking of listeners, I want to welcome a couple of new members to the Red Round Blonde Facebook group. First, I want to welcome Maria. I had the pleasure of meeting her at the My Favorite Murder meetup at Barnes & Noble for the Stay Sexy, Don't Get Murdered book. Everyone had a really great discussion about what cases got them into true crime. And Maria was great to talk to, so I'm thrilled that she's listening to the podcast. And you know how excited I get when any listeners are from other countries. So I want to welcome Sarah, who is from Australia. She left the sweetest comment saying, I'm the first she's managed to stick with since Crime Junkie, which is a huge compliment in my world. So I was on the moon after reading that. If you want to join the group, look for the Rhetoron Blonde discussion group on Facebook. And feel free to post things to the page. The podcast is also on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to get your tickets to the first ever True Crime Podcast Festival. This is in Chicago on July 13th. I'm going to be there so you can meet me. I'm definitely going. I just got my hotel booked, and it's non-refundable, so yep, I'm going to be there. And there's really going to be so many podcasts that I can't wait to see. I'm going to be there as a fan as much as a podcaster. There are over 80 true crime podcasters coming, and this includes The Vanished, Crime Writers On, Court Junkie, The Fall Line, Generation Y, True Crime Obsessed, Missing Maura Murray, and lots more, including me. This is a full-day event and gives you a chance to meet your favorite podcasters in a large-scale meet-and-greet. 
with several panel discussions and live episodes, too. I'm really excited about the fall line. That's just to name one. So to find out more and join the almost 400 people who have bought tickets, head to truecrimepodcastfestival.com or just look for it on social media. I can't wait to see you there. I'll be giving away some merch, so stop by. And I really love meeting other true crime fans. I've never been to Chicago, so this should be a blast. Well, that's the show. Thank you so much for listening and catch you next week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.